ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. As our lives and world grow more dependent on digital data, the companies that safeguard our networks and information become increasingly vital. The Wisdom Tree Cybersecurity Fund, WCBR, provides targeted exposure to innovators in cloud security, privacy, digital trust, and more. Learn more at wisdomtree.com cyber. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus available at wisdomtree.com. Read it carefully. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, on the show will be Tom Lydon, founder and CEO of ETF Trends, who just last week, they began releasing a list of the top 50 financial Twitter accounts. This is a fantastic list, and we'll certainly talk about it. But I think more importantly, this list ties into a number of threads running through both the ETF space and the financial advisory community right now, which includes the growing importance of social media, leveraging a platform like Twitter, and I think more broadly, just how the pandemic has changed the way we all connect and interact and market ourselves and our businesses. Uh, if you join me a few weeks ago, I had Round Hill's Will Hershey on, and we talked about just this, about how social media, and he would say Twitter in particular, has been a huge part of their growing business over the past couple of years, which by the way, that business has gotten much bigger recently with the success of their uh, meta ETF. It's been an amazing story. Uh, but in any event, Tom and I are going to have a conversation around this topic. I think we both bring unique perspectives in that we're both out on social media. We're both involved in ETFs. Uh, we're both advisors. So this will be interesting. And as I'm sure Tom will get into, uh, this Twitter list also ties into what I think will be the ETF event of the year next year, coming up in February, a new conference called Exchange and ETF Experience. So we'll talk a little bit about that as well. I'll then be joined by Randy Wassinger, founder and CEO of CryptoSlam. I've got to tell you, I am really excited about this. CryptoSlam is a one-stop shop to track and value non-fungible tokens, NFTs, easily one of the hottest topics this year. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, excitement around NFTs, also a lot of debate and naysayers and bubble talk. And as you might imagine, I have a bunch of questions for Randy on NFTs. So this should be fun as well. And if you're curious, yes, I do still own some NBA top shots, and they're still up in value, at least for now. We'll see what uh, Randy thinks. And then to close this week, I'll stay on the uh, crypto topic. I'll be joined by Caitlin Cook, head of community at OnRamp Invest and vice president of operations at OnRamp Academy. And going back to what I was just saying regarding uh, leveraging Twitter, that's actually where Kate and I connected. She's absolutely killing it on that platform, a great follow. But we're going to discuss the importance of crypto education, especially for financial advisors. And she'll be the first to say, even if you're highly skeptical of crypto or NFTs or whatever, the bottom line is, if you have clients you're managing money for, you better be able to have an intelligent conversation around these topics. Uh, you just can't ignore crypto 
and hope that it goes away. So we'll talk about that. And then if we have time, I also want to ask her about some other topics, including Bitcoin ETFs. As always, questions or comments, you can find me out on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's start with ETF Trends, Tom Lydon. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. This is a challenging time, probably the most challenging in 30 years. Coming out of the financial crisis, $600 billion in ETF assets. They're starting to understand that there's more opportunity outside of those major market indexes. Tom, thanks for joining me. How was the uh, long holiday weekend for you? It was great, Nate. You know, added another 10 pounds, but, you know, we know going into the holiday season, we're going to come out of this fatter than ever before. <laughs> you, you and me both. I actually smoked a 20-pound turkey, which came out fantastic, had all the, uh, the sides, family in town, so it, it, was, uh, it was That's fun. great. That's what it's all about. Good for you. All right, so let's start with this Twitter list ETF Trends is putting together. It's called ETF FinTwit and includes the top 50 financial Twitter accounts as determined by ETF Trends. And if I understand correctly, the first 25 accounts were released last week, correct? That's right. And then in the next uh, 10 days to two weeks, we're going to drip out the next 25. Nate, it's, it's been a heck of a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, look... Those of us like you and, and our friends in the ETF nerd community, uh, we can really generate a lot of good content, a lot of good banter, bar bets, things like that. But we've kind of expanded it to other types of folks in the FinTwit community, and um, they, they're there for a lot of different reasons. Uh, most importantly, diversity. Uh, in their own way, they give back. A lot of folks do stuff for charities. But I think most importantly, especially during COVID, Nate, um, there have been a support group and a network that maybe we all needed in our own different ways. And the humor that comes from these people, is it just cracks me up. And I know you love it, too. I do. Well, I'm curious. I mean, what was the impetus to put this list together? Maybe talk a little bit about how it was done. Give us some background on this. Sure. Well, um, I think one thing you've seen is within different cities— uh, there's some groups in the FinTwit community that will get together for a happy hour or something like that. And we love seeing it. We love seeing the pictures. And we love to see the, the growing relationships that come from that. Our thought was, let's look over the next year, and not just for our conference that's going to be in Miami, but also look at sponsoring happy hours in different cities where we can cultivate more of this community to get people face-to-face. -face. Uh, you know, you're talking about Caitlin. I followed her for the past couple of years. I feel like she's a friend. I bumped into her at the Riskalyze conference in Palm Desert a couple months ago, and it was like running into a long-lost sister. You know, it's just one of those things where we're very, very fortunate in this day and age to be able to create these relationships the, and, and trust, and, and not just in the good times when you can enjoy it, but I think you've also seen... People have struggled a little bit through COVID, and this community comes in and supports each other in a big, big way. So, look, we, we wanted to make sure that we recognize people, not just for their involvement in ETFs or stocks or some are advisors, some are in the ETF business, some support the financial advisor community, some are in tangential businesses that touch on investors or educate in certain ways. Uh, and, and we feel like we've got a good group. We've got a great start, and I think you're going to enjoy seeing the new people that are added as well. Well, I loved in the write-up uh, surrounding the release of these first 25, um, you said, think of this as like an index fund of FinTwit. I, I thought that was absolutely perfect. Um, but, but, Tom, you know, I'm curious, just more broadly speaking, how do you think social media has changed the game for advisors and industry professionals, and, and really even just for end investors. So we, we can certainly talk about the pandemic and, and that angle, but, but just higher level, how do you think social media has, has changed the game here? Well, um, when you think about the pandemic and you think about the average advisor, Nate, and you and I have talked about this, it's, it was tough. Um, you know, it, they, 
financial advisor have been kind of the financial frontline responders during COVID. Uh, not only did they have to respond to a lot of volatility in the marketplace, they had to reorganize their companies for everybody working from home. They had to support not just their clients and a lot of handholding there, but also all their employees. They had to make sure that they changed the way that they communicate uh, with clients and operate their business. Many had to upgrade their technology in a, in a big, big way. But many advisors, you know, if you're a sole practitioner and maybe you have a couple employees, it gets a little lonely. Think about what uh, the social media communities like the FinTwit community has done because advisors uh, are very proud. They have high level of confidence. They have high conviction, but they're also very interested in what other advisors are doing. And I think you've seen this. I've seen this. They've come together in a great way to support each other and not only through you know tough times and provide guidance um, through, t- through areas of volatility in the marketplace – but also help encourage each other in a big, big way. I think one big thing post-COVID, there are a lot of people who have made friends virtually, and these are friendships that they're never going to lose. No, I completely agree. And you mentioned meeting somebody like Caitlin in real life. That's actually one of my favorite things where you, you develop these relationships on a platform like Twitter and you really get to know somebody. And then when you actually meet them in person, it's such a, a neat experience and I was just like seeing, you know, kind of does does what the interaction and the experience you had on Twitter match up in real life? And, and usually it absolutely does. But I want to go back to, to something you were saying. So you were talking from more of a financial advisor perspective. Obviously, I operate an RIA. But, you know, we have a lot of uh, ETF issuers who listen to this podcast. And one thing that has really stuck out to me has been from the ETF wholesaling side. It's been really interesting watching how ETF issuers have had to adapt their business models since the, the wholesalers couldn't meet in person, right? They've had to get really creative in getting their message out to advisors. I think that's a really good example of how things ha- have changed. Uh, it's, it's not easy for ETF issuers to get their story and their, and their products in front of advisors to begin with. But once the pandemic hit, that became even more difficult. And you have had to see, I mentioned somebody like Roundhill at the top, see that how they've really leveraged a platform like Twitter to, to help bring their, their story to market. Well, you, well, you're so right. I mean, today, if you're a new ETF issuer, uh, the, the cost of adding wholesalers or internals can be really tremendous. But uh, from a digital distribution standpoint, getting content out there, participating in social media, uh, getting a community built that supports your strategies uh, or, the, or you help them use the tools, it can really help you get off the ground. And that's has definitely been seen by bigger issuers. We are seeing the Black Rocks and the State Streets and the vanguards of the world now even embrace digital distribution in a bigger way. They're out there on social. They're doing more webcasts. They're putting more good content out there. And it supports their traditional sales effort because, uh, you know, as, as you point out, they haven't been able to get together face-to-face. At the same time, there's been a great desire among advisors to get opinions, to get education, to have interaction. And uh, this has been not just, I think, a short-term thing. This has be something where digital distribution and traditional distribution will work together in the future, and it's really up to the advisor as far as how they want to get their information. All right, so you mentioned getting together face-to-face, as powerful as Twitter has been, keeping us all connected, and I think despite all of us leveraging technology and and Zoom and whatnot, of course, because of the pandemic, everyone in the industry hasn't really been able to gather in person over the past two years. And I know right now, Tom, you are waist-deep in planning exchange, which is a brand-new ETF conference that will be held in February down in Miami. I'll be attending the event. Uh, I'm really excited about this. It seems like there's just a tremendous amount of buzz around this conference. But do you want to offer us a quick preview? I mean, we're almost into December now, so this thing isn't that far away. It's not that far away, and we're really excited, Nate. And and you're right. uh, To be able to have a date on the books, and we're so excited to have support from the exchanges, the index providers, the issuers, we'll all be there in force. The advisors are coming out 
in a big, big way. Uh, so this is going to be a great event, February 13th through 16th at the Fountain Blue, Miami. It's a great location. Um, this is the original place where the quote, Elvis has left the building <laughs> happened. So it's, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, the, the, the weather, hopefully, fingers crossed, is going to be perfect. We've got some great speakers. Kathy Wood and her team will be there. Uh, Michael Strahan will be there. Uh, Michael Saylor. Uh, and that's going to be exciting because obviously there's some great content that we can use. There's going to be so much from a social standpoint. That's going to be one of the priorities. So it, it starts on the day that the, the Super Bowl is. So we have a huge Super Bowl party that Sunday night. We've got off-site excursions that are be, going to be going on. Uh, we've got a big party on the final night where uh, the the most popular nightclub in Miami is in that hotel. So, Nate, you're going to have to pra- practice up on your dance moves because we're bringing out the 80s music. Um, but, but the biggest thing, I think, Nate, is uh, getting together, being able to have a drink with your friends, have a drink or shake hands with somebody that you've created a friendship with virtually and be able to sit down and really get to know them face-to-face. Uh, and then the content, we put a lot of time into it because there's the exciting areas like crypto, like disruptive technology, like thematic strategies, alternative income, all things that have really exploded in the last few years. But at the same time, when you look at where the flows are going as we just crossed seven trillion dollars, it's going consistently into uh, core strategies like equities and and like fixed income. And, uh, you know, the subjects like, do you abandon the 60-40? Many advisors from our surveys are saying they're moving to 70-30 or they're even moving to to 80-20. Being able to talk to other advisors about strategies and what they're doing, that's what we're really looking forward to. Tom, all of the practice in the world won't help my dance moves, but uh, I'm happy to have a drink <laughs> <laughs> with anybody uh, who's listening and who will be down there. But you, you mentioned uh, ETFs crossing $7 trillion in, uh, in assets, and I've got to tell you, I feel like you got involved in this conference business at just the right time because I keep saying it seems like the ETF space is mushrooming right before our eyes, right? The momentum in the industry right now, honestly, it's like, it's unlike anything I've ever seen. The business is just exploding. Do you feel like that's going to help keep the uh, content fresh at the conference? Because I'm sure there are some people out there who are like, eh, it's another ETF conference, right? I've already heard it all. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't need to go down there. I, I know what I know what's going to be talked about. But do you feel like the ETF industry is now just serving you up fresh content? Well, absolutely. I mean, think what's happened in the last two years, Nate, and uh, – Think about the new players, you know, the the capital groups, uh, the T. Rowe prices, all these traditional fund companies that are finally jumping on board and offering up their active strategies. Dimensional that did the conversion of over $30 billion, um, they're going to be there. The CEO is going to be speaking. Um, talk about the problem with fixed income right now, where two years ago we weren't concerned about inflation we weren't concerned about rising interest rates and what that does to the fixed income side of your portfolio. And then, you know, the ups and downs of uh, the work from home stocks or what Kathy Wood did last year and, and what's gone on so far this year. So being able to hear from her personally and her team and her analysts about the conviction of the companies that they're buying, like all these things are new and, and really weren't as uh, top of mind just a couple years ago. So I think going into 22, the average advisor is going to make some, have to make some tough decisions, really, really tough decisions, maybe some of the toughest decisions they've had to make in a decade. Because when you think about it, for the last 10 years, the equity markets have been pretty good and the bond markets have been pretty good. Not so much right now. There's concern about uh, valuations. There's concern about concentration and the major market indexes. Do you want to have too many bets on on a few stocks? Um, I'm sure you're thinking the same thing as an advisor. You're probably, even though you've had core positions, thinking 
do I need to make some decisions going into 22? Well, and it's one of the biggest questions from clients, right? They're seeing everything going on as well and, and want to know how that's going to be addressed moving forward. I'm curious. I'm, I'm assuming there's going to be some crypto and Bitcoin ETF discussion down in Miami as well. There will be a lot of it. And there, it's not just the people that are already in the ETF space with the future strategies, but all those people that are lined up around the corner with applications at the SEC will be there, too anticipating that in 22 that we'll see some type of spot ETF. All right. On a somewhat similar note, before I let you go, as you heard at the top, I will be talking NFTs, non-fungible tokens today. Uh, I'll be joined here in just a moment by the founder of CryptoSlam, which is a really neat uh, business. But I have to ask you, Tom, do you own any NFTs? So I'm very much into crypto. I've been looking at NFTs. I don't have any NFTs. However, I'm thinking, Nate, a little idea that maybe you and I can do together. How about if we create some ETF nerd crypto punks or ETF nerd board apes? Don't you think that there'd be a big market for those? You know, that, that's a really good idea, actually. So it, it's funny because back in, I, I think it was uh, February, believe it or not, I actually minted my own NFT on Rarible. So it, it was of my, you're not going to believe this, it was of my jump shot, my NBA quality three-point jumper. And I've been a little disappointed. This thing still hasn't sold. I mean, some people say we're in an NFT bubble and I can't get my jumper to sell on Rarible. I'm seeing CryptoPunks and apes go for millions of dollars. Nobody wants my jump shot. But uh, perhaps if we have ETF nerds or something along those lines, I think there could be a, a market for that. I think that's a pretty good idea. Well, let's let, we got a, we got a few months to put this together. We've got to get our artists. We've got to try to get good pictures of our friends like Balchunas and Nodig and Rosenbluth and Hogan and Venuto. Um, and then uh, maybe we'll get the ETF Fintwit group to uh, poke holes in it and make fun of it. I think this is a fantastic idea. I think you're absolutely on to something. Uh, count me in on that, Tom. Uh, but look, always great chatting, uh, fun stuff this week. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Nate. Take care. Talk to you soon. That was Tom Lydon, founder and CEO of ETF Trends. With yields as low as they are today, investors seeking high current income don't have a lot of choices, especially if they don't want to expose themselves to a heightened level of risk. The Nationwide Risk Management Income ETF NUSI may be an exception. It's designed to seek high monthly income and a measure of downside protection in falling markets. NUSI, a new approach to income generation. Before investing, it's important to consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-617-004 for a prospectus containing this information. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Risk includes possible principal loss. Quasar Distributors, LLC. I am now joined by Randy Wassinger, founder and CEO of CryptoSlam, who I would describe as the preeminent resource for data on non-fungible tokens, NFTs. Uh, essentially, they're providing real-time data on NFT sales and transactions, which, if you think about this, isn't as easy as you, you might believe, considering that NFTs are minted on multiple blockchains, and you just think about the decentralized nature of blockchains, NFT transactions can happen anywhere, but CryptoSlam is solving the problem of aggregating all of this data and providing intelligence to buyers and sellers in, in, of uh, NFTs. Uh, Randy is now on the line with me from right here in Kansas City. Randy, great to connect. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Nate. Uh, that was an outstanding uh, intro, by the way. I uh, really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm super excited to talk to you today. Well, there is so much I want to ask you about NFTs, but I think we have to start with a background on CryptoSlam. How in the world did you end up building an aggregation platform for NFTs? I mean, what was the business path here? Well, Nate, uh, I got in as as just somebody following the industry back in 2018, if you can believe it, uh, a lot of people may not know, but NFTs have actually been around uh, a while. And I dipped my toe in um, 
actually, I say dip my toe in. I jumped in with, with both feet really hard in August of 2018 with a project called MLB Champions, which was officially licensed uh, NFTs on the Ethereum blockchain. And I grew up as – I was that kid who uh, – kids my age, like everybody collected baseball cards it seemed like, but I, w- I was the one that collected way too many. So this was, it's something I've been obsessed about my entire life is, uh, you know, baseball, uh, n- not just baseball cards, but uh, memorabilia, all kinds of different collectibles. Well, anyway, I saw this as, wow, it's, it's uh, baseball, officially licensed uh, baseball collectibles on the blockchain. And, and I jumped in hard and uh, bought a lot of them and, and realized pretty quick that, these things were on the blockchain, but you really didn't know like how many Salvador Perez's or Mike Trout's were, were minted and in what what their attributes were. And um, yeah, there was just nobody doing a good job or, or really any job at all in tracking what was actually out there. So I quickly saw the, the business need and I've been creating various websites over, over the past 20 years. So it, it was not new territory for me to, you know, um, throw something together and just, yeah, just start building and, and see, you know, first, you know, it was just for my own benefit at first, because I wanted to know as a, as a collector, as an NFT investor, what was out there. But then once I, I released it into the wild and saw that other collectors like myself appreciated having this data aggregated, that I saw that there was, there was definitely a need for, this aggregator of, of data for not, not just the MLB champions, but the, you know, other projects that soon followed. Yeah. So on that note, for people who haven't been to the site, which it's cryptoslam.io, just explain what someone will find there and, and talk about what you've built so far. Well, Cryptoslam is a great place for discovery and research of NFTs. If you're into, uh, if you've dabbled into crypto at all, you might, you may have stumbled across like coin market cap or coin gecko let's say to to find out what um what are the the hottest uh, fungible tokens if you will cryptocurrencies other tokens to invest in so you've got that for for fungible tokens but for nfts we we aim to be that coin market cap or that coin gecko of nfts where you go to yeah d- discover and and research what's out there in the nft land you mentioned uh, NFTs have been around for a while, and, and, and you mentioned MLB champions. But I think for many people, NFTs seem like a recent phenomenon, right? Something that just came on the scene this year. Now, I remember uh, CryptoKitties a few years back. I, I guess two questions. Were the CryptoKitties really the first well-known NFTs? And then I'm curious, what do you think caused the explosion of NFTs into the mainstream this year? Yeah, great question, Uh I would say, yeah, CryptoKitties were the, the first well-known. That would have been December of 2017. So, yeah, pretty much four years ago, um, CryptoKitties had their little mini explosion. They were certainly not the first NFTs. If you've heard of CryptoPunks, they were minted by Larva Labs in June of 2017, but they were not very well-known at, at the time. In fact, to, to mint a, a CryptoPunk was, was free. Anybody could have done it. And, uh, you know, now those many of those are, are worth millions of dollars, if, if you could believe that. So I would say the first well-known blue chip would be CryptoPunks. And then, yeah, the first the first one that had mainstream appeal would have been CryptoKitties. That was by Dapper Labs. And, um, you know, I, I think that's important to note because the team behind that Dapper, uh, they quickly saw the potential of, of NFTs. And it, it wasn't necessarily... Um, building out crypto kitties themselves, but it was, it was, they went and, and, um, well, since, gosh, that, I'm trying to think of how many years that would have been. Like since 2017, they started building their own blockchain called Flow. It's like they realized what was good about Ethereum and what needed to be improved, and they went and they built their own blockchain. And that gets into your next question of, of what caused the, the explosion of NFTs over this past year. Well, Flow was the first blockchain that allowed, I would say, like mainstream users to to hop on board because it was so easy for users to hop on to NBA Top Shot. They had they built this on ramp that was 
really pretty seamless for somebody to to go and uh, throw down a credit card and buy an NFT. And and that hadn't been there since since the beginning. It was it was pretty painful for a new user to come come in and purchase Ethereum and then figure out the nuances of, of MetaMask and these other these other ways of, of buying NFTs and uh, yeah, Dapper solved that with with their uh, with their wallet, and I think that was one of the main catalysts to NFTs exploding here over the past year. Just just a better on ramp. No, I completely agree. I mean, I had been tracking NFTs for a little while, but when NBA Top Shot, um, you know, started getting a lot of publicity, I actually went out, bought some, and the experience was so easy. It was so seamless. You mentioned that it was on the flow blockchain. It was just a really neat concept. And I think that just expanded bringing people under the uh, under the, the NFT tent. And it was a good sort of gateway into NFTs. And, you know, obviously we've seen the, the explosion since then. I'm curious with CryptoSlam, how many different blockchains are you tracking? And what, what does the decision-making process look like on whether to incorporate particular NFTs into the website data? Because I think about, we can talk NBA Top Shot, but think about all the brands and people getting involved in this space. I mean, I saw a couple of weeks ago, Cypress Hill is launching NFTs. Obviously, there are big brands like sports leagues and, and teams that have NFTs around, say, their, their championships. Adidas had an announcement a, a couple of weeks ago getting involved in NFTs, movie studios. How do you decide which to track and show it uh, at CryptoSlam? Well, right now we're tracking, I, th- I think it's 10 blockchains, and there's there's many more to come. Um, we've got Avalanche coming soon, um, Wave, Palm, um, like a candy uh, 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 with Gary V. There's an MLB product coming out on Palm, and we'll be tracking that soon. So to answer your question, how do we decide? Ideally, we want to track it all. And we've been expanding rapidly in order to, to be able to handle yeah, all the innovation that's going on in the industry because uh, whether it, it shouldn't matter like what blockchain an NFT is on, I think our users are going to they're going to want to know more about it regardless of where it's at. So the decision making process is if something's hot, we, we definitely bump that up on the priority list, but we're working hard to where we can, we can onboard projects and, and blockchains in, in a, in a faster, you know, more efficient manner. So. Randy, taking a step back, how do you like to define NFTs? And I'll sort of color that question by adding, you know, there's a pretty large contingent of people who will say, look, these are just JPEGs, right? I'll I'll right click and I'll save the picture of the ape. Now I own it. I have the same thing you just paid a million dollars for. With that backdrop, how do you like to describe NFTs? Well, you know, it's a fair argument, to be honest, but I think the the counterpoint would be um, you could could take a picture of, of the Mona Lisa and slap it up on your wall and say, hey, I own the Mona Lisa or I... You could get a reprint of a of a 1952 Topps Mickey Mantle rookie card and say, "Hey, I've got a, a, a Mickey Mantle rookie." It's it's the same thing with the, with the right click and save. It's you can right click and save a CryptoPunk or a Board Ape, but you you really don't have it. And that's what's that's what's great about the blockchain is you can track the history of when something was minted and who owned it and what it was sold for. It's got that, that provenance, if, if you will, that, um, you know, art pieces have. And, you know, I say that I, another counterpoint would be, well, for instance, like there's utility that's getting baked into these NFTs as well. I'm trying to think of what a good example would be like for, for board ape yacht club. If you owned a board ape, and not just you can't couldn't just right click and, and save this this board ape, but if you physically owned it and can prove it, there was a meetup in New York City uh, in early November where all these board ape owners got on a yacht and partied and got to know each other and cooked up new ideas for for what's coming next. And you couldn't have done that if you if you simply just had this JPEG saved on on your computer, and. Furthermore, uh, owners of board apes, uh, again, not not right click and save owners, but uh, blockchain provable owners were were airdropped, um, you know, or, or had the ability to mint new 
uh, Mutant Apes that came out. I think that was like in, in September. So it's like there's there's utility baked into these NFTs that if you can prove, like if, if you can connect your wallet and prove that you physically own something, then you're able to get access, I guess, that you wouldn't have otherwise. It could be like minting a, a, new, a new NFT with that project. It could be getting whitelisted for a brand new project that comes out. And um, there's a lot of innovation going on too. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot of a lot of new things come out in in 2022 where you get, I guess, access to new features and new new products for for being able to prove that you own. One question I have, and I don't want to get uh, too far into sort of the technical weeds here, but as I understand it, NFTs point to a file that exists somewhere on a server. So isn't there this potential issue that let's say that file goes away, well, well, then the NFT would be worthless. In other words, a lot of these NFTs rely on centralized servers to actually store the images, which is kind of the opposite of decentralized blockchains. Is that an issue? Yeah, and that, that, that's a fair point. Um, it's like what happens if, if, if the image for my, um, for my Salvador Perez uh, MLB champion from 2018, if, that, if the server where that resides goes away, then then yeah, it's like, do I really still own that Salvador Perez? I would argue yes, because if you look at what's actually on the blockchain, um, you know, you there's there's DNA, there's there's attributes that that represent that Salvador Perez, and one of those attributes would be like like a link to a link to the image. But I think like to to your point though, um, what you're seeing now is like a trend for the images themselves not to be stored on a centralized server. They will be stored in one of two ways. They'll either be um, on on a uh, storage mechanism called IPFS, which is much like the blockchain. It's decentralized, but it's better suited for storing large files. And so, you know, it's it's a lot better. I wouldn't say it's perfect because um, because images stored on IPFS aren't quite there forever like the Ethereum blockchain is. There's some nuances to that, which you know, again, not to get too technical, but I would say you're 99% of the way there if you store them on IPFS. And then the other option would be storing the images themselves directly on the blockchain. And you're seeing like a trend towards that now where the images themselves, they're, they're stored as uh, SVG directly on the blockchain. And that's why they're, they're very pixelated because you can't have like a high resolution image stored on the blockchain without going broke because it's, it's just a lot of data. And for each byte that you store on Ethereum or wherever it is, it, it, costs, it costs money, it costs storage fees. So that's why you're seeing like, like a trend towards these pixelated images where, um, yeah, and, and users kind of, they don't really care. I think that's, that's part of the fun, I guess, is creating cool images that don't have to be high res, but that are, you know, physically on the blockchain like like forever there's there's no centralized server that could go down and you're you're starting to see a trend towards that all right randy so let's get to what i think is the biggest debate surrounding nfts in the investment space and that's whether nfts are a bubble and i actually sent out a tweet over the weekend you'll probably get a kick out of this so that for 1.2 million dollars 1.2 million dollars you could either buy a picture of an ape with laser eyes, or you could own some nice uh, waterfront property. Uh, and I think it sure, was yeah. Mar- Marco Island, Florida. And, you know, just higher level, my sense is a lot of people have a really hard time getting their head around how a picture of an ape or a, a crypto punk could sell for hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. What, what's your take on all of this, just from what I'll call a valuation perspective? Yeah, sure. And I would say, you know, that that ape sale is not an isolated incident incident. Like you could go to crypto slam right now. If you click on like the 30 day tab, for instance, I was just looking this morning, like, like there've been 15 sales over the last month that are over a million dollars, including that, that laser eyed ape that, that you mentioned. So I would say at, at, so the question was, are NFTs a bubble? I would say yes. I mean, there's there's certainly an, a, a a bubble aspect in NFTs that's been out there, but I would I would argue that a lot of that bubble has already occurred. It has already popped and collapsed, 
and a new bubbles have already formed. And that's, that's what's just fascinating about NFTs is that there's these, there's these cycles, you know, within, I guess, certain aspects that they move really quick. There's, there's some people that have, that have gotten hurt by investing in, oh, let's say what, what was hot over the summer would have been, um, what I would call like board ape knockoffs because they're, they're profile pictures that are auto generated and they may not be a board ape. They may be, you know, like just some other animal. And of, of course that's a bubble and they, they went up in value and, the, and then they crashed. And I think a lot of that's happened though, but in, in general, like the industry as a whole, would that, would that person that bought that $1.2 million laser eyed ape, is that going to crash anytime soon? I, I guess it could, you know, and, and there's certainly fluctuations. But if you look in, in the long term, you know, I would, I would argue that's, that's a pretty darn good investment. Um, and, you know, if, if, it, if it's not that particular project, Board Ape, then, then something else would, would replace it. You mentioned those multiple million dollar transactions recently. What, what about this narrative that the reason for some of those big values is money laundering? Or even just an owner selling NFTs back and forth with themselves, right? For multiple wallets, they're, they're trying to juice prices. Do you think that's an issue here at all? I think that's 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 a fair concern. Those like wash sales. What's great about the blockchain is it's all out there, and people are really good at sniffing out these shady transactions, if you will. It's like, well, yeah, that. Did that board ape really sell for over a million dollars or, or was, you know, was it just sold to, to like a related party or, or, or this, to the same person? Well, you can look on the blockchain. You can go to CryptoSlam and see this. You can see the transfers of these assets in, in these wallets. And what else does this new wallet own? You know, is it a legit user or was it something that was just set up now? And were there related transactions? Like you can you can sniff all this out. It's unlike. For instance, in cryptocurrency uh, I, uh, wash sales, I know that was that was a big issue and probably still is. Uh, at, at some point, a, a couple years ago, like where um, these exchanges were inflating the volume um, through uh, through wash sales, or at least that was the that was the, the contention. And so, a lot of that was 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 removed on the coin market caps of the world. Like they would remove that from their volume. Well. Those are all on centralized exchanges, all, all of those transactions where those wash sales may or may not occur. But with NFTs, it's, these are not occurring on centralized exchanges. They're occurring on the blockchain, so you see all of it. And, yeah, it, I'm not saying it hasn't occurred because it has, but I would say that when the wash sales have occurred, that they've been sniffed out really quick. And, um, you know, we, we remove them from crypto slam if, if we see it. There's actually a, a huge a huge uh, CryptoPunk sale about a month ago that it was just like a publicity stunt where, where the person sold it and bought it back right away in one transaction. And it was for, you know, $5 million or something crazy like that. And, and it was clearly a wash sale. We, we pulled it out of our, our sales rankings, but it, you know, it was still clearly a transaction that happened on the blockchain. So it, it was still tracked, but yeah, I would say it's, it, it's something to watch out for, but I just don't, don't feel like it's occurring on a mass scale. One thing I'm curious about, how do you determine which value to show for NFTs on your site? And I'm not asking for your secret sauce here, but I'll use NBA Top Shot as an example, just because that's something I'm familiar with. You know, there might be, say, 10,000 of a particular Steph Curry digital card. So how would you value card number 7,001? Yeah, with you know, with your Steph Curry example, um, they are all largely the same because with NBA Top Shot, it's it's not like there's unique attributes with each Steph Curry moment, um, a particular moment. Now, there's different moments. There's him with a dunk or him shooting a uh, like a three pointer, but within each moment, there's there's nothing unique other than uh, the serial number. Uh, so, the valuation would look at how low is the serial number? Because collectors tend to value a, you know, let's say definitely a number one or number two 
serial number Steph Curry compared to a number 367. So that's one metric. Like we can look at in, in general, like the low serial numbers, what kind of multiplier do collectors apply to those compared to the higher number ones? So, so that's one example. Another big example with NBA Top Shot is people love to see serial number matches with the jersey number. So I'm not I don't I don't know what Steph's jersey number is off the top of my head, but whatever ma- whatever serial number matches that definitely um, um, has a premium attached to it. And it's not like we're arbitrarily assigning that multiplier when we come up with our valuations you can you can tell because all this all this data is out there on on the blockchain or you know via apis where where we can see in general like what when a serial number matches a jersey number what kind of multiplier do collectors apply to that and so then we apply it to the population as a whole and so now you've got like a you know like a a a beckett value if you will if you're familiar with baseball cards you've got like that the Beckett value or the Kelly Blue Book value of of these NFTs like what it you know would likely sell for if it if it were on the market Randy just about a minute left here uh I'm curious what's next for crypto slam like what do you see as the future path here moving forward well for us I mean we definitely like I mentioned earlier definitely accelerated onboarding of, of new projects and new blockchains I can't can't wait to see what comes out in 2022, but I can guarantee you we will be there and we'll be we'll be tracking it. It's come so far, the industry has in the past year, and I, I think 2022 is even going to be bigger and, and, and more exciting. Uh, with us, you'll see more detailed analytics when you when you dive into a, a project like NBA Top Shot or Board Ape or whatever the next new hot project is. We'll we'll have even more detailed analytics, expose the data, and I guess more user-friendly ways. I think we've got some fun, um, some fun new features coming out in that regard, and um, and then definitely new product launches. Uh, we've got a lot of that coming out that that's been in the works. Can't get into too many de- details with that, but it, expect from Crypto Slam new new product launches. I would say too, just internally, we uh, we're expanding our team uh, rapidly. So we'll be we've we've been hiring and we're continuing to hire. So I would say if, if anybody out there is into NFTs and it's like, man, I I I'd love to hop on board and feel like I could provide value. We're we're hiring across the board from engineers to marketing, PR, uh, all of that. Yeah, we're we're rapidly building the team. I'd just say, yeah, reach out to us and let's let's have a conversation. Well, just a fascinating business to me, certainly a fascinating space overall in NFTs. Uh, Wish you the best of luck moving forward, and thank you for joining me this week. You bet, Nate. Really enjoyed the call. Uh, Anytime. Let's do it again. That was Randy Wassinger, founder and CEO of CryptoSlam. This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainably related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of the progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risk, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. I'm now joined by Caitlin Cook, head of community at OnRamp Invest and vice president of operations at OnRamp Academy. I always like to describe OnRamp as building the bridge for financial advisors between traditional financial services and the crypto asset ecosystem. They're doing that directly through OnRamp if you go to OnRampInvest.com. But perhaps even more importantly, one of the things I love is that they're leading with crypto education. If you go to academy.onrampinvest.com, and Kate and I will talk about this, 
there's literally all of the foundational knowledge you would ever need to get started in the space, at least to be conversant with clients. Uh, Caitlin is now on the line with me from Chicago. Caitlin, great to reconnect. Welcome to the podcast. Hey there. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, it's funny because Twitter is really what initially connected us, right? We've crossed paths there several times. I know I followed you for a while. Uh, you invited me to do a Twitter Spaces on Bitcoin ETFs earlier this year with Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas, which that was a lot of fun. But I talked earlier with ETF Trends' Tom Lydon about how uh, Twitter has impacted a lot of people in financial services. And from my perspective, I feel like you've really carved out a presence there over the last couple of years. I guess let's start there because I think this may also play have <laughs> played a role in you getting involved with OnRamp. Just talk a little bit about your FinTwit journey, like when did you first get on there? Uh, what made you decide to sort of go all in, and, and how has it impacted your career? Sure. So I started out on Twitter technically November 2013, according to my Twitter bio here, which I don't remember. But I started probably back in, I believe, my junior or senior year of college. My I had a finance professor I was close with who said, this might be something you're interested in. It's a great way to learn great way to meet people. I've always been really big on networking, so it just seemed like a good fit. And from there, I just started meeting people. I moved to Chicago. I worked in asset management sales previous to my role now. And I, I just started, you know, sharing my thoughts on the markets and interacting with different people within the community, made a lot of really good, you know, not only friends, but mentors and just really good people to know in the space. And it's kind of taken a life of its own since. But I did get my job at OnRamp from Twitter, uh, so just really, really active in the community. And I knew our CEO, Tyrone Ross, from Twitter. Um, we followed each other. We interacted with each other. Um, and sometimes we messaged back and forth about different things. So I had known him. I had known our co-founder, Eric Irvin, um, a little bit. Didn't know him too well, but we knew each other, at least by name. And when I was looking for new roles, I was talking to quite a few few people from Twitter had a lot of really good opportunities and was DMing with Tyrone about something. And I just figured, well, why not? So I mentioned, you know, I love what you're doing with OnRamp. If you happen to be expanding the team at any point, let me know. He answered back in 30 seconds and said, you're hired. What do you want to do? Amazing. We did a, we did a FaceTime a couple hours later and it was pretty much done. So it was really all, all due to Twitter, really, because I had just putting out my thoughts, showing who I was for years, really, and you could get a really good feel for who I was as a result of that. I'm curious, were you involved with crypto in any capacity before that? Like, did you invest on your own, or had you gone down the rabbit hole yet, or was OnRamp really that catalyst? OnRamp was the catalyst. So I will never forget actually talking to Tyrone that day, and, you know, he was explaining what OnRamp does, a little bit more nuanced and going into details, and I stopped him and said, you know I know nothing about crypto, right? So I, I really didn't know a thing. The only thing I really knew was what I saw on Twitter, ironically, at the time, which wasn't much. So my educational journey and even buying crypto started out when I was hired at OnRamp, you know, doing a lot of research, trying to figure out what the space is all about. And um, I remember Eric even um, had me as just as an exercise, really, to practice opening up a Gemini account, an account at Coinbase, just to see what the process is like, how it differs from the traditional side. But that was really my introduction was my first few weeks at work, really. Okay, so you heard my description of OnRamp and OnRamp Academy at the top. How do you like to describe what you and the team are building there? Sure. So OnRamp invests an integration platform as a service. And to keep it really simple, we provide financial advisors with three things education, access, and tools, and that's all in relation to crypto assets. So we have OnRamp Academy, which is obviously where I sit, is the educating financial advisors on everything that they need to know that their clients will be asking them, whether that's what is Bitcoin to, you know, how do I do estate planning for crypto assets? There's a lot of things that advisors need to think about that a retail investor might not have to um, in regard to how it fits within a broader financial plan. So there's a lot of information specific to what matters to financial advisors, which I think is our really big edge. We have, I think, around a handful of CFPs on our team as well who have lived that life and know the ins and outs of the business. So that's the education aspect. And then we have access in tools, which is on the platform side, allowing financial advisors to either 
directly trade crypto on behalf of clients, open accounts on behalf of their clients at, say, a Gemini or a Prime Trust, as well as the ability to not directly manage the crypto assets from clients, but have a what we call view-only um, look into what's called held-away accounts that clients have opened and managed on their own. So just from that perspective, providing more visibility into that crypto allocation for, you know, portfolio allocation and, you know, just broader financial planning purposes. On the education side, I know you like to talk about how financial advisors, even if they don't necessarily believe in crypto or, you know, they think it's worthless, it's a scam, whatever, you believe strongly they need to be conversant in this topic, right? They need to be knowledgeable. Can you talk more about that? Why that's so important? Sure. So in my mind, and again, I come from that traditional background, working as an asset manager, selling traditional ETFs and mutual funds, everything you could really think of other than crypto. But to me, crypto is no different from the perspective that if a client comes in and sits down or a prospective client sits down in your office and has questions about an asset class, I can guarantee that no advisor wants to know less than their client does about what they're talking about. Crypto is definitely a hot topic right now that goes without saying for anyone that has a TV or social media account. It's everywhere. But I see it as even like gold, high yield, how advisors might feel different ways about those assets. But at the end of the day, they still know something about them. You have to have the educational background and have the context in order to form an educated opinion that you can go to with your clients. So if they bring up crypto assets, you have something knowledgeable to say, right? There are a lot of reasons that people work with financial advisors, and we don't need to get into those. But I, I think that one of those is, without a doubt, the expertise and ability to keep up with what's going on in the market. It's a lot to manage, and advisors don't need to be experts on crypto, but they definitely need to be conversant and be willing to have those conversations with clients when it comes up. And it definitely will come up with the speed at which the space is growing. And it's likely that if you're an advisor listening to this, you probably have clients that own crypto. You may never have spoken to them about it. They may never have brought it to you. They may have done it five years ago and forgot about it, but they may own crypto. So you just have to prepare your, yourself and your business for what's to come, because I think you know, it's, it's something that's only going to continue growing. I think that is really well said. And you mentioned high yield. That's the example that I always use here in that some advisors really don't believe in owning junk bonds in a portfolio because they have equity-like volatility or whatever. But guess what? If a client shows up at your office asking about junk bonds and you can't speak intelligently about it, there's a high likelihood they're going to run the other way out the door. And crypto is no different. Whether or not you use it in a portfolio, you have to be educated in this space. And to, to your point, just the innovation occurring here, how rapidly the space is evolving, it's clearly moving more and more mainstream. I was talking about this earlier just uh, as it pertains to NFTs. And so you can't just have this as a whole in your uh, your, your investment knowledge as an advisor. I, I guess on that note, I, I know th this is a big part of what you're building at OnRamp Academy, but I, I will tell you from my perspective, Man, it's been tough getting my head around everything going on in, in crypto. And listeners of this podcast know that I've spent a lot of time. I mean, I've read books, white papers. I've had numerous conversations with experts in the space. And honestly, Kate, I feel like I barely understand what's going on here. And, and perhaps I'm not the brightest bull, but I, I think I have a decent head on my shoulders. How does someone even begin the education process here? Because there is just so much. I feel like it, it can be overwhelming. It, it's so easily overwhelming. And I think even just to admit working in this space is sort of overwhelming too, right? You wake up every day, these markets don't close, and there's people around the world building this space, building new infrastructure, different protocols. And there's there's so much noise, not to say that it, it's not meaningful work, right? But when you're an advisor, I think keeping it within the scope of what you need to know that's most relevant to your business, where to get started there. I would say just keep it really, really simple. Start with Bitcoin. Learn Bitcoin backwards and forwards. That is the place to start. It is, you know, the original, you know, we talk about the Satoshi white paper in 08 coming out of this time, this trust in traditional financial systems and Bitcoin was born, both the blockchain and the coin. Start with learning about that. There's so many different coins and projects and all of these things stem from that very 
entry-level point in 08 from the Satoshi White Paper and this idea of decentralization and blockchain technology and the different functions that it can serve. So I think starting with Bitcoin is the easiest thing that you can do. You can go back and learn about other coins and tokens and different protocols and how they all connect after that. Um, But it's super easy to get overwhelmed. And then after that, there's a lot of different directions that you can go. But even within the academy, right, I think there's a lot of jargon to tackle when we're learning about crypto. That's something that I emphasize all the time. Finance has a lot of jargon in general, but crypto is like another language entirely. So I think we have, you know, we have an on-ramp dictionary, a crypto dictionary, an on-ramp academy. Um, But generally within the space, I mean, learning what a lot of these terms even mean, because even the kind of piping, if you will, or the infrastructure that all of this is built on is different than the traditional side. So just thinking about the materials we have in OnRamp Academy that are more beginner, you know, blockchain 101, what is a blockchain? How do crypto brokers, exchanges, and custodians operate versus their traditional counterparts? Because there are a lot of differences that advisors should be aware of. How does storage work for crypto? Hot versus cold wallets, public versus private keys, and how those work. Those are the basics that you have to have a super strong understanding of, especially as an advisor, to be able to explain back to your clients when they're even considering, you know, allocating to crypto if they haven't already. So I think that's a lot of the the foundation that you need. And then from there, you can go into the role of NFTs, DAOs, stable coins. We like to call those crypto dollars. But there's a lot of different shiny objects being waved in your face. And just remember to keep it at the basics. You know, what is Bitcoin? How would I store it? What players in the space would I be able to work with in order to do that? And then from there, you go into the kind of ongoing practice management aspect for financial advisors. You know, how do I do tax planning? How do I do estate planning? Um, I think that's a really good place to start because if you don't break the process up into sort of different phases, I think it's very easy to get overwhelmed. All right, Kate, just a few minutes left. You know I have to ask you about my favorite topic Bitcoin ETF. So so talk to me about Bitcoin ETFs. And if you want, you can break these into futures-based ETFs and spot-based. It's your call. But as you may or may not know, uh, Tyrone and I have had numerous public debates on this topic. I'll never forget, he actually pulled out his phone and uh, literally live-streamed one of our debates in Bryant Park uh, in New York City. It, it, it was a blast. This was a couple years back. But I just love how passionately he argues against Bitcoin ETFs. What's your view? So I, I sort of I sort of lean towards Tyrone's opinion on this a little bit, but I can add some nuance. So I think when you look at what Bitcoin and crypto and this whole idea of decentralization is really for, do I think that owning this underlying asset directly, owning the Bitcoin itself, is is the best option to really take advantage of what this technology has the potential for? Absolutely. That being said, we are in a really critical point right now where people have kind of accepted that this is sticking around, but we're still waiting on that, you know, widespread adoption. Tyrone always talks about that. You know, hopefully we're, we're getting closer to that, but anything that propels us in that direction, propels the market that way is beneficial. So when we talk about ETFs, I absolutely think it's a net positive. That being said, I, I don't find it to be the ideal way to be owning crypto, but I think that it's a great starting point for people, especially coming from that traditional side. I can understand that a lot of financial professionals may want it within that more traditional package, but they still want exposure. This is That's a great place to start. Um, I wouldn't go into a longer spiel on how I feel about futures ETF being approved before a spot. Um, <laughs> I think... I think um, People really need to understand what they're investing in when they buy a futures ETF and knowing that they don't have, um, you know, actual exposure to the underlying of Bitcoin directly, uh, just Bitcoin futures market. I think there's a lot of education that needs to be done in the futures market as well. So I don't have I'm not very, you know, hugely supportive of the futures ETF itself from a spot ETF perspective. I would love to see one of them approved or several approved. I know there's been a lot of applications. Obviously, none in the market in the U.S. yet. There was one in Canada, at least, that I was aware of. But I, I think, as a whole, it's a positive for the space. I personally would rather own the underlying directly um, and take advantage of what 
blockchain and decentralization have to offer, but I think it's a great start for most people to start with a spot ETF. No, I think all of that is extremely well said. You know, it's funny because I think people view me as like the, this hardcore Bitcoin ETF guy. I've always viewed Bitcoin ETFs as a bridge. And if they can help get people more interested in the space and get them down the path towards investing in, in Bitcoin and crypto directly, then that's a, a net positive. And I think that Bitcoin ETFs can do that. They can pull more people in and hopefully that'll accelerate the education process because longer term, we, we all know, I mean, crypto is going mainstream now, but th this thing's here to stay. It's not going anywhere. And if Bitcoin ETFs can serve as that bridge from, as I mentioned at the top, traditional financial services over to crypto, which is what OnRamp is doing, I think that's a wonderful thing. But um, Kate, great reconnecting. Uh, by the way, have you trademarked Educate before you allocate with with, with Kate C A I T instead of C A T E on educate. <laughs> I'll run that by. I'll run that by Tyrone. And I need to change the slogan there. <laughs> well, hey, really love what you and the team are building at on ramp. I uh, love how you're leading with education. I, I always think that's a winning formula. But best of luck to you. Let's stay in touch. Uh, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. That was Caitlin Cook, head of community at OnRamp Invest and vice president of operations at OnRamp Academy. That'll do it for this week's CTF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by CFRA's Todd Rosenbluth, always one of my favorite guests. We're going to go around the world of ETFs, and I am going to pin him down on a few 2022 ETF predictions. And then Perth Toll, founder of Life and Liberty Indexes, will spotlight the Freedom 100 Emerging Markets ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.